Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 60. I am your host, Jack Henneman, and I'm recording this episode on February 19th, 2022, in Austin, Texas. This episode will go better if you have recently listened to last week's Introduction to Samuel de Champlain and some other stuff. If you are new to the podcast, we are telling the history of the lands now encompassed by the United States from the beginning without presentism. The best way to support what we are doing here is to tell your friends, either the old-fashioned way or on your social propaganda website of choice, or to write a nice review on Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. But especially just tell your friends. That means the most by a long shot, especially if your friends have thousands of followers on Twitter or a massive blog. Glenn Reynolds, proprietor of Instapundit.com, has generously sent thousands of his readers to this podcast a couple of times, including on February 11th, for which I am grateful and humbled. Samuel de Champlain is more often thought of as a Canadian founding father than an American one, and that makes sense. Most of his work was along the St. Lawrence River, and most of that lies entirely within Canada. Champlain and his legacy fall within the arbitrary mandate of this podcast, however, for two reasons. The first is that in 1604, Champlain attempted his first colony in today's United States, just 1,700 feet inside Maine's border with New Brunswick. And that year, he would explore the coast of New England at least as far south as Cape Cod. Then, Champlain and a handful of French soldiers and allies from the Algonquin tribes along the St. Lawrence and the surrounding territory twice invaded New York and fought two remarkable battles, one in the area of Fort Ticonderoga in the summer of 1609, just as John Smith was learning that the Virginia Company had demoted him, and the other in the summer of 1615 at the site of today's Syracuse, New York. The second reason is that Champlain was the enabler of New France, and tirelessly sustained the French colonies in eastern Canada, both by his leadership on the spot and his advocacy within the movers and shakers of France. The substantial presence of the French on the northern border of today's United States would eventually challenge the English, who would ultimately expel thousands of Francophone people from Acadia in the maritime provinces, some of whom would end up in Louisiana. Arguably, all those LSU fans who spell go as in go tigers, G-E-A-U-X, do so because of Champlain. Go tigers. Such are the ripples of history. Before I jump in, I want to recommend another podcast, the Other States of America History Podcast by Eric Yanis. This podcast has been looking at many of the same moments in the history of the Americans that this one does. And right now, he is several episodes deep on Champlain. I've learned a lot from them. We both read David Hackett Fisher's biography, which I quoted at length last time and will again. So I'm sure he and I will overlap a bit. But if you like the topics we have covered here, you might check out his podcast as well. I'll put a link in the show notes. 
As we discussed last week, Champlain is a bit of a paradox. We know a great deal about what he did and know far less about who he was. He wrote voluminously about the things he did, but as Fisher observed, he was remarkably humble or discreet about himself. We do not know when, precisely, he was born. Historians have argued for various years between 1570 and 1580 or the religion of his parents. We do know that he came from a seafaring people on the coast of France in the town of Brouage, on the Bay of Biscay, and the region known as Saintonge, in turn known for its culture of individuality and entrepreneurialism. Saintonge and its unique culture would be the home of other leaders and promoters of New France too, including Pierre Dugois, Sir de Mont, Champlain's friend and patron. Champlain went to sea as a boy and learned enough English and Spanish to get along, as many mariners did in those days. Like many men from Saintonge, Champlain was exposed to a huge array of cultures and religions in his early seafaring life and would develop a great open-mindedness, at least by the standards of the day, toward people who were manifestly different from him. He would demonstrate an unusual capacity for getting along with a wide range of people, including important nobles of very different temperaments, who would support his own ambitions in North America over the years. There is a controversy about Champlain's biological parentage. Rumors persisted that he was the illegitimate son of the man who would become King Henry IV, who would be one of France's most humane and interesting kings, and the moving force behind French colonization in the New World. The actual evidence for this is scant, and it largely comes down to a few bits of circumstance that nevertheless are enough in the aggregate to raise the question. First, that the future king, then Prince Henry de Bern in Navarre, who spent many of his salad days in Saintonge, was a hound dog, known to have had at least 56 mistresses, and no doubt many more, and to have fathered at least 11 illegitimate children. Such children would have been discreetly fostered off to helpful and loyal families in the region. The inability to locate Champlain's birth records in the country that literally invented bureaucracy suggests a possible cover-up. Second, that Champlain rose quickly in Henry's court, assumed the honorific Sir de Champlain as a very young man, and received a royal pension from Henry as early as 1601. He had routine and unfettered access to the king at a time when that was no mean feat. Third, as reticent to write of himself as he was, Champlain described himself as obligé de naissance, or bound from birth to Henry IV. This was a strange thing to write. None of this and some other similar circumstantial evidence is close to proof that Champlain was the bastard son of Henry IV, but it ain't nothing either. And since we always go with the fun and interesting outcome in these close calls, I'm going to say he was and move on. Henry IV himself was a fascinating character, and because he was the royal sponsor of New France, he is worth a moment. Let's go back to Fisher for his take. Quote, In the long history of France, Henry IV has a unique place. 
It has been said that he was the only king whose memory was cherished by the people. His subjects remembered him as Henri le Grand, Henry the Great. In physical terms, he, like Champlain, was not a large man, but there was a greatness in his acts and thoughts, a largeness in his energy and resolve, and an astonishing amplitude in both his virtues and his vices. The qualities of this king were very different from those of other great figures in the history of France. In his personal style of life, Henry IV was far removed from the formal grandeur of Louis XIV, the imperial splendor of Napoleon, and also from the austere and distant condescension of Charles de Gaulle. The character of Henry IV appeared in the nicknames that his subjects invented for him. They celebrated him as the King of Hearts. Others called him Le Passionné, the Passionate One, or Le Roi Libre, the Free King. These sobriquets referred to Henry's public and private life. In his many love affairs, Henry IV was indeed the King of Hearts, the Passionate One, and the Free King all at once, in a sense that had nothing to do with political theory or public policy. At the same time, Henry's nicknames also described a unique style of kingship that flowed from the heart. Other monarchs cultivated a distance between themselves and their subjects. They used remoteness as an instrument of royal power. Henry went another way. He was known to leave his palace incognito and mix with his subjects in informal ways. As a leader, he was open, informal, warm, free-spirited, brave, witty, clever, generous to friends and enemies alike. Dare I say, the Ted Lasso of his age. And I'm going to say this again, just so you didn't think it was a mistake the first time I said it. For me, success is not about the wins and losses. It is about helping these young fellows be the best versions of themselves on and off the field. Or maybe not. Back to Fisher. Henry was also thought to be mercurial, fickle, unreliable, and untrustworthy. Another nickname borrowed from his father was Henry the Unsteady. His best friends acknowledged his flaws, but his warmth and magnetism drew even his enemies to his service. Back to me. Among his other accomplishments, Henry massively expanded the Louvre, which served as his palace and home for more than a thousand courtiers. Perhaps you've been there to see the Mona Lisa, the Winged Victory, or the David... It was an enormously expensive undertaking and a departure from his usual fiscal restraint. About this charge, Henry supposedly said that, quote, people say I am miserly, but I do three things that are unrestrained by avarice. I make war, I make love, and I build. If you're going to be a king, you might as well do it right. Two other attributes contributed to Henry's great popularity, one particularly relevant to New France and the other just interesting. First, Henry became king through a series of random events that put him on the throne after more than 30 years of brutal religious war in France. Henry was born to a Protestant family and he converted to Catholicism to cement his power and to bind the country together. In 1598, Henry proclaimed the Edict of Nantes, which granted to French Protestants rights of coexistence, freedom of conscience, and some measure of official recognition. Henry put himself firmly on the side of tolerance, 
and by twists and turns paved the way for both Catholic and Protestant French to settle in New France. Second, Henry promoted working-class prosperity, almost as a populist politician of today would do. Henry is said to have remarked that, quote, there will be no laborer in my kingdom who lacks the means to have a chicken in his pot. As Fisher wrote, Henry IV's phrase would reverberate through the ages. The tutors of Louis XIV quoted it to their royal master without much effect. In the United States, President Herbert Hoover borrowed the phrase and made a campaign promise of a chicken in every pot in the election of 1928. Minor aside on that one. It turns out it's difficult to find historical confirmation that Hoover himself actually promised a chicken in every pot in a speech or anything he wrote, notwithstanding the almost universal view that he did. I dug around on this a bit. The source seems to be a Republican campaign flyer from 1928, presumably amplified by some journalist or historian. But don't let that distract us from the key point, which is that Henry IV, King of France, gave us a chicken in every pot. Henry set the terms for French settlement in North America. In May of 1598, he orchestrated the Peace of Vervins, the settlement of more than 30 years of religious war in France. Protestants and Catholics within France came to terms of a sort, and the major European powers who'd been fighting wars by proxy within France agreed to withdraw their troops from French soil. In Fisher's words, Henry's vision was of a country bound together by a tolerance of diversity— and mutual respect for its differences. Many came to share that vision in 1598. Henry used the peace he had established at home to put the Spanish on notice that he would not respect the traditional papal decrees defining areas of permitted settlement. They would draw new lines, as it were, and declare new spheres, with the basic idea that peace would prevail in Europe and the Eastern Atlantic, but, as the English put it, there would be no peace beyond the line. At some risk of overstating it, the English, French, and Dutch took the point of view after 1598 and to some degree before then that competition and even shooting over there did not mean there would be war over here. Henry, for his part, made it clear to the Spanish in particular, as well as other European rulers, that he meant to exercise sovereignty in areas of North America that France had claimed following the voyages of Jacques Cartier and others in the 1530s and 1540s. Henry set the southern boundary of French lands at the 40th parallel, roughly Philadelphia, and claimed all the lands to the north. Here's Fisher's account of Henry's interest, quote, Henry had long been interested in many parts of France and often thought of himself as following Francois I, who had sponsored the voyages of Cartier and other French explorers. As early as the 1570s, before he came to the throne, Henry had supported French colonization in parts of South America. In August 1588, he corresponded with Sir Francis Drake, his, quote, most affectionate and best friend, about opportunities in the new world. Boom. 
And it should be said, long-standing and attentive listeners will remember that Francois I had sponsored Verrazzano in 1524, even before Cartier's voyages, and had done so in violation of the papal decrees conferring the rights of exploration exclusively to Spain and Portugal. You may recall that Francois I had famously snarked, "'The sun shines for me as it does for others.'" I would very much like to see the clause of Adam's will, by which I should be denied my share of the world. Against this backdrop, in 1598 Champlain, who was at least Henry's protege, even if he wasn't his son, made his way by convoluted means to the Spanish New World. In short, the Peace of Vervin required the withdrawal of the Spanish troops from France, There was a shortage of ships to carry them, but Champlain's rich uncle, Guillaume Hélène, owned one and cut a deal to lease it to the Spanish to take their soldiers home. Guillaume Hélène was a fascinating character in his own right, with a fortune built on mysterious means at sea, no doubt privateering or worse. He was famous in his time and known to the seafaring men of France as Le Capitaine Provençal, and so he will be to us. Captain Provençal loved his nephew Samuel, so he took him along on the troop-ferrying project to Cadiz. Champlain and his uncle and their ship, the St. Julian, arrived in Cadiz Bay on September 14, 1598. Champlain spent the next few months in the area, eventually reaching Seville. His observations were keen, and he recorded everything he saw in his journal, including detailed notes on fortifications. Champlain's drawings showed the locations of city walls and defensive towers, the placement of gates, and the height of battlements. He even drew bird's-eye view sketches, which suggested that he had learned specifically about intelligence gathering, perhaps at the direction of somebody in Henry's circle. None of this was low risk. The Spanish were good at finding spies and dealt with them severely. Fortune, however, again favored him. Champlain avoided suspicion, and then in early 1599, Captain Provençal cut a deal to lease the St. Julian for the defense of the soon-to-depart Spanish treasure fleet. He himself would not go along, but sought and obtained permission from the flota's commander for Champlain to sail with his ship, presumably to keep an eye on it. Champlain would sail with notional permission into the Spanish West Indies and New Spain, where the penalty for spying was death. Champlain would go on to spend almost two years in Spanish America, sailing most of the Caribbean and the Gulf, including visits to Cartagena and more than four months in Havana and its environs. He would also reach Mexico City and spend the better part of a year exploring as far as the Spanish would allow him. We shall skip over most of that experience, except to note that Champlain developed strong opinions about Spanish rule in the Americas, including especially their treatment of Indians and African slaves. These would inform his practices as leader of New France. Champlain eventually returned to Spain in August 1600 and called on his uncle, who had become quite sick and was in decline. Captain Provençal asked Champlain to take over the management of his far-flung assets, and for the next nine months he would do exactly that, transacting his uncle's considerable business 
and learning how to manage complex enterprises. Guillaume Len would die in early July 1601, having written a will that conveyed all his assets to his nephew. We do not know how large the fortune was because no accounting has been found, but we do know that it was drawn under a Spanish law that applied only to estates that exceeded the average income of a laborer in Spain by at least 500 times. At some point in his late 20s, Champlain had become a very rich man. Having settled his father's affairs, by the fall of 1601, Champlain was back in Paris and immediately received by the king at the Louvre. He presented Henry with a book-length discourse on his time in the Spanish New World, including with his now customary maps and detailed observations. Henry put him on a retainer, swore Champlain to the royal service, and ordered him to join a group of intellectuals headquartered in the palace who were tasked with developing France's project in the Americas. It was an incubator of sorts, calling to mind Prince Henry the Navigator's project at Cape St. Vincent more than 150 years before. Over the next two years, Champlain developed relationships with the French network of intellectuals, investors, and merchants interested in building on Jacques Cartier's legacy in New France, which in 1603 existed almost entirely on maps and as a destination for individual traders and fishermen. In the interest of moving matters along, I'll spare you the various ins and outs and what have yous. But in 1602, Henry appointed a pair of royal commissioners to lead New France. One of them, Amar de Chaste, was in Fisher's words, a leader with a large spirit who won the respect and affection of all who knew him. Champlain, who was a peerless networker, in turn won Chase's affection, and the two of them put together a plan for new France with a great vision. Per Fisher, quote, Champlain was Chase's junior partner, but with the ear of the king and a strong support. Henry IV was the royal patron who contributed his own broad vision, energy, and resolve. As a group, these men framed a great enterprise that combined exploration, trade, and settlement. The goal was to increase the power and prosperity of France, to spread the Christian faith, to learn more about the world, and to bring together its many people in a spirit of humanity. Fisher describes the group of intellectuals in the court of Henry at great length, and I'm not going to do that here. Suffice it to say that the intellectual humanism at the center of their thinking shaped in a fundamental way their philosophical approach to settlement in North America in a way that would make New France quite a bit different from New England or La Florida. With a letter from the king and a network of investors recruited by Chaste, Champlain located a flagship, the Bon Renommé, in English, the Good Renown. Its commander was another large character, Captain Francois Gravet, the Sieur de Pont, and known to his men as Pont Gravet. Pont Gravet was about 10 years older than Champlain, immensely experienced in the North Atlantic and would become another fond mentor to our still young hero. Pancrave had been to the St. Lawrence only the year before and had brought back with him, apparently voluntarily, two Montagnier Indians. They had 
been received by Henry IV, treated warmly and with respect, made the tour of some of the great French houses, learned French, and had developed a high respect for the people of France. Unlike many other Indians who had come and would come to the old world, these Montagnier interpreters would be helpful to Champlain and Pancrave, at least to the near-term benefit of their own people and France. The good renown was between 120 and 150 tons and about 90 feet long, a decent size for a modest expedition. Pancrave rounded up two more ships, the 100-ton La Francoise, funded by the merchants of Rouen, and a third, smaller vessel of unknown name and tonnage. The fleet further carried by some fashion, perhaps on the decks or towed behind, two smaller vessels of 12 to 15 tons, small barks, and two shallops in prefabricated sections for assembly in the New World. We've seen that trick before, too. Their mission would be to trade profitably if possible. They had investors to keep in mind and explore the region to identify a suitable location for a settlement on a subsequent expedition. The ships left France on the Ides of March 1603, and after an eventful and storm-tossed crossing reached the immense mouth of the St. Lawrence, known then as the River of Canada, by the middle of May. Long-standing and very attentive listeners will remember that the Englishman Martin Pring, owner of the Mastiffs, Fool and Gallant, would depart on his voyage to the New England coast that April and would arrive farther south on the coast of Maine, roughly as Champlain's expedition was entering the St. Lawrence. Champlain and Pring would approach the local indigenous peoples in a very different spirit, and that would reverberate down the years. If you are in a position to do, consider opening a map app to study the geography of the St. Lawrence River. The mouth of the river is more than 100 miles wide and is divided by Anticosti Island, then the home of a population of polar bears of, in Fisher's words, legendary ferocity who attacked humans on sight. Even Indians stayed away except for occasional hunting forays. Today, the entire population of the immense island, more than 120 miles in length, is still only around 200 people. The fleet bypassed Anticosti and sailed on to the mouth of the Saguenay River, a bit more than 100 miles east of the future site of Quebec City. On May 26, 1603, the ships dropped anchor in Tadoussac Harbor there, and Pont-Grave and Champlain considered how they might contact local Indians. Luck was with them. The next day they learned of a huge assembly of Algonquins from numerous tribes who had gathered along the banks of the river just upstream for a late spring celebration of a great victory over their enemies, the Iroquois. Now let's go to Fisher's account, which cannot be improved upon. Quote, Champlain and Pancrave acted quickly. They and the two Montagnier interpreters climbed into a shallop, sailed across the wind-swept Saguenay River, and went into the huge Indian camp. It was a lively scene, billowing clouds of white smoke rising above the lodges, a swirl of color and movement in the camp, crowds of young braves and beautifully dressed Indian maidens mixing with each other, gangs of children and packs of dogs dashing to and fro. 
The Indian drums were beating in celebration. More than a hundred fresh Iroquois scalps were on display. Wounded Iroquois captives were tightly bound to stakes, and their torture had already begun. Blood dripped from what remained of slashed and shattered fingers as they stoically awaited their fate. The two French leaders came ashore with their young Montagnier companions and walked boldly into the camp. They showed not the slightest sign of fear or hostility, a demeanor that was very different from that of many Europeans. Probably they were wearing half-armor and gleaming steel helmets, adorned with the white plumes of their Bourbon king, but without firearms, different again from others in similar circumstances. Pancrave, Champlain, and the Montagnier were taken to a chief they called Anna de Bijou. They found him in a big bark lodge, 60 or 70 paces long, holding a tobacco feast for 80 or 100 companions. Champlain described these leaders as sagamores and Anna de Bijou of the Tadoussac Montagnier as the grand sagamore who presided over the gathering as the host. Anna de Bijou welcomed the French according to the custom of the country and invited them to sit in a place of honor. When all were seated, an expectant silence followed. Then one of the two Montagniers who had been to France rose and began to speak. He described the castles and cities he had seen, spoke warmly of his meeting with Henry IV, and talked at length of his good treatment by the people in France. Champlain remembered that the young Indian was heard with the greatest possible silence. When he finished, the Grand Sagamore smoked a long pipe, passed it to the other Sagamores and to Pont-Grave, and began to speak with great gravity. He said that, in truth, they ought to be very glad to have his majesty for their great friend. The Indians all answered in one voice, Ho, 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 which is to say, yes, yes. Anna de Bijou paused, then spoke again. He said to the Indian nations that it would be well if his majesty, the king of France, should people their land and make war on their enemies. And there was no nation in the world to which they wished more good than to the French. Champlain wrote that the Sagamore gave them all to understand the advantage and profit they might receive from his majesty. Back to me. Fisher continues with page after fascinating page about this first encounter. The food they ate, meat of moose the dances they saw, and their encounters with a huge flotilla of birch bark canoes. The important part is that this moment marked the beginning of his long relationship, both personal and as a representative of France, with the Montagnier Indians, who are known today as the Innu. Because of the expansive spirit of Champlain and Pancrave, and for that matter, Anna de Bijou, so began a trusting international relationship that would be virtually unique in the annals of European colonization in America. Champlain and Pancrave spent the next few weeks exploring the area. Champlain mapped the mouth of the Saguenay River and proposed to explore upstream. His new Montagnier friends, however, were adamant that he should not. 
Their economic fortunes depended on their role as middlemen in the lucrative fur trade, and they were not going to jeopardize that by letting the French get to know their wholesalers, or vice versa. The explorers then moved up the St. Lawrence, a journey of a few weeks which would set the stage for Champlain's most important future settlement and his first exploration of today's United States. After departing the mouth of the Saguenay on June 18th, they made slow progress against the current and the wind, reaching the Ile d'Orléans, Orleans Island to we Anglophones, on June 22nd. You can see on a map app that it is quite a large island in the river just downstream from the site of Quebec City. Beyond the island, they anchored at a narrowing in the river that the locals called Quebec, K-E-B-E-C, an Algonquin word for conveniently a narrowing in a river. Champlain explored the area and made note of its level ground, rich soil, and defensibility. Continuing upriver, which is fundamentally to the southwest, they reached the mouth of the San Maurice River, which flows into three parts at its mouth because of several large islands. This place Champlain named Trois-Rivières, Three Rivers, and so it is called today. Ten miles farther upstream, they reached a large lake, which you will see on the map as Lac Saint-Pierre, Lake St. Peter, which is essentially a wide spot in the St. Lawrence, 20 miles long and seven miles across. At the upriver end of the lake, they discovered a wide stream from the south, that is, the direction of the United States, that the Indians called the River of the Iroquois. They described two large lakes to the south and another river that flowed from there in the opposite direction to the south. We know now that they were describing Lake Champlain, Lake George, and the Hudson River. Further on, they reached the fall line, the point at which the river could not be navigated without intervening portage. There a highland arose above the river. It had been named by Jacques Cartier, who called it Mont Real. Champlain quizzed local Indians about what lay beyond the rapids, and they described the Great Lakes, Niagara Falls, and the Detroit River, or at least geographical features that plausibly lined up with those places once Europeans actually did encounter and map them. Champlain recorded the latitude at this point, 45 degrees in some minutes, or almost five degrees of latitude south of the frigid mouth of the St. Lawrence, a north-south distance of nearly 300 miles. Champlain reckoned that the fertile and temperate shores of the lake in the region between Quebec and Montreal would make the ideal spot for settlement in New France. Sadly, it would take some time and one catastrophic failure to win his argument. Having reached the limits of navigation in 1603, Champlain and Pancrave turned around and headed back to Tadoussac at the mouth of the Saguenay River. There they were met by their flagship, Good Renown. They sailed downriver, pausing for the better part of a month to explore the Atlantic side of the Gaspé Peninsula, and then headed home to France. The trip had been a huge success, both as a voyage of exploration and intelligence gathering, and as a trading mission, 
They came back to France with a big load of furs purchased from the Montagnier and generated returns in excess of 30% for their investors. This is a great place to stop for now. Next week, we will take up Champlain's first incursions into the United States. Thank you again for listening to the History of the Americans podcast. Your emails have been very encouraging. Please keep them coming. You can reach me with questions, corrections, eruptions of indignation, or pats on the back on the contact page for the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com, or by email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com. Until next time, when I will be recording an episode in New Orleans, unless I get too caught up in Mardi Gras fun.